Hey friends, this is a re-release of episode 303. We haven't had many oops on this podcast, but we had an oops with this one. We had Jamie Mason Cohen's introduction, but we had Payson McKelvin's audio file. That obviously isn't what we meant to do, and we had a little bit of an oops. But if you want to listen to leadership coach Jamie Mason Cohen talking about resilience and talking about where it comes from, the importance of being seen and acknowledged, how to make your values real, and how drive can be a strength or liability, make sure that you re-listen to this episode. Again, sorry about that, and I hope that you really enjoyed this episode with Jamie Mason Cohen. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community, and that we get to learn and grow together. A key value in resilience is this phrase, I am always learning and growing. I'm always learning and growing. So every failure, temporary rejection, that's just one step and I'm always learning and growing. So falling in love with the process and not always the results, results are nice, but we don't always have control over those results. I have found that if, if I can be in that space, I'm always learning and growing, whether things work out or not the way I want, I know that something positive has come up out of that crisis or that challenge. I really enjoyed today's conversation with Jamie Mason Cohen. He is a resilience and leadership expert, and he is a Canadian native, a certified leadership coach, and he has a really interesting work history, including working at Saturday Night Live. And he also has had his own business, and now he teaches resilience, wellness, leadership, and communication to organizations and has a prolific career in public speaking. He is also a graphotherapist, which means that he can perform handwriting analysis, just looking at how you do things with your letters. If the first letter in a sentence is bigger than the rest of the sentence, things like that, he can determine a lot about a person's personality. And I had never heard of that before. Jamie works to cultivate resilience through unique performance assessments, the science of positive psychology, which is something we talk about a lot on this podcast, and other leadership strategies that we talk about today. He's a commentator on CNN, Forbes, and The Morning Show, and is often recognized for his TEDx talk on leadership. So we're in good hands today with all of Jamie's knowledge. You'll get lots of key takeaways today, including where resilience comes from, the importance of being seen and being acknowledged, especially whenever you are being challenged or being able to do that for somebody else. We talked about how to compare to past versions of yourself, which can be a real challenge because our life's inputs change over time. We talked about how to make your values real. We also talked about how having a strong drive for work ethic can be a strength or it can be a liability, how to be a practical optimist, and so much more. Making good decisions in your life and having resilience and being more positive comes from a strong foundation, and that foundation is health. You've heard me talk about the importance of sleep and exercise and relationships, including the relationship with yourself. And before we can start working on some of these bigger, broader topics in our lives, we need to have the energy to show up. 
For a lot of people, eating healthily is something that is a priority to them, but it can be really hard to get in all of those essential vitamins and nutrients that you need on any given day. That's where supplementation comes in, and while it is not a replacement for healthy eating, it is an insurance policy just to make sure that you are covering all of your bases. That's where Athletic Greens comes in and their supplement AG1. I started taking this because they have over 75 essential vitamins, nutrients, adaptogens, and probiotics in one simple supplement. It is a powder that you put in water and you just drink it. And you could, you don't have to mess with a bunch of different pill bottles. You don't have to try to remember all of these different things to take. And that can be a challenge sometimes, especially when you are pursuing high performance and you want to take extra things like adaptogens and probiotics. It's also a very high quality supplement. It's NSF certified. So if you're worried about contamination or if you're a professional athlete, you don't have to worry about that. It's also keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, and gluten-free. So you don't have to worry if you have any uh, dietary restrictions. And they constantly have product iterations and third-party testing to make sure that they're bringing you the highest quality supplements out there. If you're curious about it and you've been hearing about AG1 a lot, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And I love travel packs because I like to make sure that I stay on target with my nutrition and my supplementation when I'm traveling. And having these single serving packs makes it really easy to do that. It's something that you can do when you're sitting on the plane just to know that you are going to check all those boxes. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. That is athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. And in doing so, you can support this podcast and also support and take ownership of your own health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. If you're enjoying topics like resilience, like high performance, like well-being on this podcast, make sure that you sign up for my free weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday. I tackle a thought of the week, an article or something that came up that I have been thinking about and I do a bit of research and write an article for you. I have a question for you to ponder and I also giving you the show notes for the podcast as well as a podcast look back. The podcast look back is a new thing that I started doing because we have 303 plus episodes and not everybody has listened to every episode. In fact, probably nobody has listened to every episode. It's normal to miss them. So whenever we want to just add in something new, we add that podcast look back for you in the newsletter. You can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. All right, let's get into today's episode with Jamie Mason Cohen. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Sonia. If we were chatting, I noticed that there was that live on air all lit up in the background. And you mentioned that that kind of reminded you of your Saturday Night Live days. Yeah. So I just graduated from university in Ontario, where I'm from. I, I grew up just outside of Toronto. And my dream was to work at Saturday Night Live. So I called Lorne Michaels' office 25 times. This is before Google. You could just look it up. I looked it up in the yellow pages yes. <laughs> and I got to his assistant and I asked her over and over again, week after week. And she said, Jamie, is this the guy from Toronto? What will it take for you to stop calling? So I said, can you just send a letter that I am going to write to Mr. Michaels? She said, fine, whatever. So I heard nothing after sending the letter. And then I got a call directly from someone who sounded like Dr. Evil, uh, uh, <laughs> Mike Myers based Lauren Michaels character, the Dr. Evil on Mike Myers. And um, it was Lauren Michaels. And he said, how can I help you? And I don't exactly remember what I said, but I pitched myself saying, I look up to you. You're someone I want to be like. Is there any way I'm going to be in New York anyways, visiting a family friend? Can I come visit with you for a few minutes? And to my surprise, he said, okay, I'll give you a few minutes. 
And then I went off and I got my interview with Lauren Michaels. I got the job and I ended up working there for four years. And what was the role? I started off as an assistant and Lauren Michaels has a production company, which produces shows like Conan O'Brien, now the Jimmy Fallon show, Mm -hmm. 30 Rock and many others. And so I started as an assistant and I moved my way up to become a mid-level producer. I don't think I was that funny, which is maybe why I didn't last that long, but uh, it was really a visa issue. I'm from Canada. So it was after 9-11 and it was very hard to secure a visa after 9-11. So I ended up working on the show, working throughout the whole company, having the experience of my life in New York as someone in their mid-20s. And I ended up coming back to Toronto and worked for sports companies. I worked for the ESPN of Canada called Sportsnet, producing NBA documentaries and directed TV commercials, eventually starting my own company doing media at that time. Where did that vision come from to work for Saturday Night Live and then to believe in yourself enough to have that level of persistence? You know, I the people around you is important, who you surround yourself with or who you're lucky to have around you. So my father, who had to become very persistent because of his life circumstances, he encouraged me to go for it because I had expressed interest after working as a production assistant on Toronto film shoots. He says, who's the most successful Canadian film producer in the world? And it was either Norman Jewison, who was a famous director in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, did films with Denzel Washington and Sidney Poitier and others. And he was based in Toronto, but I didn't have any feeling like I could connect with him. But Lorne Michaels was from Toronto, And my dad went to the same high school at a different time. And I thought maybe that's a little bit of an in that I could reach out. And I don't think he cared that much about that connection because I'm sure once a week, someone asked him about that, but it was my father who planted the seed. He's like, why don't you just go for it? And my mother said, you know, I don't want you to leave home, but yeah, go, go for it. So it was who I was surrounding myself with. I had a few friends who said, you know what? I think it's a crazy big dream and I know you're going to do it. So the most important thing I felt at that age of my life as being someone from that was about 22 years old was who are you going to listen to? What voices are you going to let in? And if those voices are positive, if they're encouraging, if they're uplifting and renewing you, listen to them. And even as I think of it, I'm getting goosebumps reminding me of those people who played such an important role. And the same as the opposite, the inverse, those who put that dream down or who have a blank stare or are stoic and indifferent when you express a big dream, that's usually because they're not living their dreams or they didn't live their dreams. So it's not necessarily animosity toward your dreams. They just, it's not in their psyche. It's, it's not in their repertoire of understanding it. So be very careful who you express that dream to. And what about your, your inner voice? Cause I'm hearing like, you know, your parents believed in you and encouraged you, which is absolutely incredible. But what were you telling yourself? I would speak to myself in the third person, which now science backs that up. And I didn't yeah. know that at the time I would say you have what it takes to make this happen. You've overcome many things in your life. When you asked me to be on this podcast, I thought, what's a story that I haven't told people before in a podcast that I feel comfortable with that might be relevant for our conversation. So this is it, which is, and I have this person's permission to speak about this in public, but this is the voice I heard. My father was a successful lawyer and he went to jail suddenly when I was 19. 
at a really important time in our lives when we're, you know, a teenager. And he was arrested right in front of our house, in front of our neighbors. And he turned out my father was a gambling addict. Unlike alcohol or drugs, you can't really see a gambling addict unless you really are clear what to look for. It's very hard. And so he went to jail and it was on the front page of the newspaper in Toronto. And it really affected my mom, my sister and I and our extended family. And I got through that. Like I got stronger. I ended up working three jobs to help get pay my way through university. And I lived a rather sheltered life, at least financially up to that point. I was an athlete, not a high level athlete, but I was really committed uh, as a, a baseball player. I played hockey with guys who went to the NHL. So I had built physical strength at that age, but I hadn't built this emotional strength. So when my father ended up getting out of jail, we actually got closer because of it because I understood his addiction and the sickness. And we had these really difficult conversations about what it meant. And um, he was my role model up to that point, and he, and he still is in certain ways. That gave me the emotional strength that I could overcome anything. So to say, I have a dream that I want to go to New York City from Toronto with no friends there, with no family relations, and figure out how to work for my dream company after overcoming the challenges and the crisis that I had during that time as a 19 and 20 year old, I thought I could do anything. So I guess the takeaway for me there for you, not for you, but for listeners who might be listening to this is whatever, if you think back to your life, what are the biggest challenges that at the time seemed insurmountable? It could be in sports, but it could be, you know, a breakup. It could be a death in the family, which you might never get over, but you've managed to deal with it. Some kind of trauma. You've overcome that. And so your dreams, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, you've already tapped into your inner resources. So I would say to myself, you got this in, this, in the third person. You got this. You've got your back. You can do this because look at everything else you've already overcome. You can move to it. What's the worst that can happen? It doesn't last. It doesn't work out. Look what you just went through with your family and you were stronger than you could ever have imagined. It was that simple at the time. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I imagine that was quite traumatic to have that happen in your life, but it sounds like you were able to identify that you are a resilient person and confidence came from looking back and saying, look at all these things that I was able to do in spite of the challenges that I've had. And then that catapulted you forward into going after this big dream. Exactly. Yeah. I think resilience, a good starting point from my experience is looking back, not forward at first and saying, what have I overcome in my life that now I take for granted, or I might not even think about it. And if I have overcome that, then moving forward in the future, I can definitely tackle whatever challenges are put in my way. Yeah. And a lot of times we don't spend the time to go back and to reflect on the things that make us stronger or the things that we did well, because we're so focused on the future or focused on deprivation, like what, how we don't compare or what we don't have. Mm -hmm. What about for you? What do you think is the key to your resilience, uh, whether it's been in sports or, or in your life? It's the same thing. It's looking back and saying, you know, I can do hard things. I did this, I did that. And even now, this is like a really small example, but I've had two pregnancies. I rode my mountain bike to the end of each pregnancy. And there's a technical aspect of mountain biking and you have to get your confidence back riding technical terrain because there's things you won't ride when you're pregnant. And the same goes for the listener who, you know, 
you, the listener, like you, maybe you fell and got injured and you're afraid to try again. And you have to look back at these past positive experiences that you've had to say, yeah, like I can come back from this and I can still improve and having that growth mindset. Yeah. I think the growth mindset is key, right? Is always learning. I think a key value in resilience is this phrase. I'm always learning and growing. I'm always learning and growing. So every failure, temporary rejection, that's just one step and I'm always learning and growing. So falling in love with the process and not always the results, results are nice, but we don't always have control over those results. I have found that if, if I can be in that space, I'm always learning and growing, whether things work out or not the way I want, I know that something positive has come up out of that crisis or that challenge. Yeah. Like there is no finish line, but there's all these things that you can learn while you're working towards the finish line. Exactly. So how did you wrestle? And maybe you didn't even have it to wrestle with this, but imposter syndrome, like you're like a kid, you're going to New York, you're sitting in front of like your, one of your heroes saying, Hey, I want to work for you. Yeah. So continuing that story. So I got the interview and I was backstage at Saturday night live in the writer's room. So if you can just imagine for your listeners, there was this like corridor of famous faces that I grew up with. People like Mike Myers and Gilda Radner and John Belushi. Well, that was before my time, but these people, Will Ferrell. And I was nervous. I was anxious. And I didn't know how, even my body language. I was so insecure in that moment. Like, oh my God, I felt imposter syndrome times a thousand. But I breathed it in. I, I did the best I could in that moment, which is all we can do. And at that moment, I felt this powerful force behind me. It was a male voice and he was high-fiving people and calling people by their name. And I was like, I've heard this person before, but in that moment, I, I couldn't understand who it was. And then I said, please don't sit down beside me. Please don't sit down beside me. And he sat down right beside me. And it was no other than the late great Chris Farley. Now, for uh -huh. those of you who might be in your twenties, early thirties, you might not know who that is. You may have heard of him. Chris Farley was the legendary physical comedian of his era in the late nineties. And he passed away just a few months after I met him, which was in 1997 behind the scenes, Adam Sandler, David Spade, who you might've heard of or know, they were close friends in this fraternity on the show at the same time. So he turns to me, says, who are you? I said, oh, I I'm, I'm just here to see, you know, uh, Lauren Michaels. He goes, who are you? Are you an actor? Are you? No, no, no. I'm just here mm -hmm. for an interview. You know, I, I called Lauren Michaels, you know, office and he responded. He goes, wow. So I told him about my peewee baseball coach who happened to be in the movie with Chris Farley. And my dad and this man, this coach were friends. This man also had an addiction issue, but he helped Chris Farley get through his addiction issues. Oh, I only wow. know that through my dad. So he says, so I told him I knew this man. He goes, oh my God you know, so-and-so, you know, John, not his real name. He goes, everybody, Jamie knows John. <laughs> and I felt like Sonia, I was a turtle about to hide, but there's nowhere to hide. But here's what happened. He listened to me. He, Chris Farley made me feel like the most interesting and important person in the room, even though he would have been in most rooms, the most dynamic, the most charismatic and important. And really the takeaway was, was I had imposter syndrome, but after that conversation, the way Chris Farley made me feel by building psychological safety, by making it okay for me to be my authentic self, I became relaxed. I was calm. Lord Michael soon walked in looking flawless in his Armani suit and his very serious dignified air. And he looked right at me. He had no idea who I was, which humbled me even more. If I couldn't even be more humbled, this is a big moment in my life. And Lord Michael's had no idea who I was. 
I walked into that office. Lorne Michaels was a gentleman. He was so cool. He spoke with me one-on-one. And at the end of it, he said, hey, why don't you come work for me? And so my takeaway from that situation was it's okay to have imposter syndrome when you're younger. It's actually better to be humble and to know that you don't know everything, to ask questions, to ask questions you might think are dumb questions. You might ask a question that shows confidence. It's the counter of what you might think is asking people, hey, can you dumb that down for me? Can you help me better understand this? It sounds like you don't know what you're talking about, but older people who are successful sometimes think young people coming into a situation have a sense of arrogance or entitlement. I'm not saying that you do as a listener. I'm saying this is what years and years working with executives and CEOs, sometimes they think. So if you can break that mold by almost owning your imposter syndrome, but not amplifying it, not using words like, um, you know, I think, I believe, um, you know, it's being confident and present and looking people in the eye and speaking your truth and feeling that you belong to be there. But at the same time, owning that you don't know everything. And if you don't know things, it's better to ask questions than it is to just sit there in silence and hope nobody knows that you don't know something. And that's the approach that I took instinctively at that time. And it served me well, because when I worked there at Saturday Night Live and Lorne Mike, for Lorne Michaels teams, I asked a lot more questions than I answered. I asked, I was more conversational than statements. And I felt that was a tool that even today when I coach groups, it's better if it's conversational than it's just statements. People do not like being told what to do, but they do like to be in conversation where it's a give or take. Yeah. It sounds like that acceptance piece of like, Hey, this is how I feel and it's okay. And giving yourself permission to be yourself, but also feeling seen by somebody that you really respected and looked up to has really served you. And then being able to do that for other people too. Yeah. I think that's the key. What you said, thanks for adding that is he made me feel seen and acknowledged and you can be a someone in their 20s and make someone in their 50s feel acknowledged and seen by simply being present and noticing them as a human being, not just someone that you want something from, whether it's a job, whether it's a promotion or whatever that might be, or a coach for that matter. It's like seeing the human being in that moment and really caring about them. It never gets old, no matter, I'm in my mid 40s. I want that. I don't need it as much as I did in my 20s but I want that from people I care about almost as much as I did 20 years ago. Yeah. And feeling seen, feeling acknowledged, it almost gives you the permission to ask those questions and to feel like you're in a comfortable place where you can say, I don't know that. And for executives and and just anybody who doesn't know something, it, it takes courage and vulnerability to say that you don't know the answer to something, but going back to what you said earlier of, it was like a mantra of I'm learning. I'm always in process that goes back to that and ties that together. Yeah. I I would add, I love the process. I was so goal oriented and so focused on results when I was a little bit younger that if I didn't reach the results that I had envisioned, if they were like a Mount Everest of of, of a level, I'd almost get, I'd have this emotional drop or void 
And I couldn't put my finger on, like even behind me, I have, you don't see this at home, but I have a vision board of my values and my goals, my personal, my professional. I have another board with, with, you know, it used to be all the results, all that the, like, where do I want to end up? Which I think starting with the ending end in mind is valuable, but now I balance more. And what is the process? What are the skills that I want to develop or progress on in doing this passion project in my next speech, whatever it is. And that's not just on a professional level. That could be with hobbies. That could be with relationships is there's a book uh, called the progress principle. And it's all about the most important component that this researcher found when it comes to resilience is progress. Am I better than I was a year ago? Not am I better than someone on YouTube or TikTok who I perceive having more followers or a, bi a bigger speaking career? No. Am I better than I was a year ago or two years ago? That is a recipe for not just resilience or grit, but also I think a happier, more fulfilled life than just am I reaching the result that I had envisioned, uh, whether or not it comes true in the way that I think it should. This is a topic that we love on the podcast, talking about process and how you measure success and how you set goals that aren't based on an outcome. Because in some ways, the outcome is not in your control. But I wanted to actually ask you about this because a lot of times when we compare ourselves to past versions of ourselves, that could also cause problems because we have different in, different inputs. So like the things that you're doing in your you know 40s, you might have a lot of different inputs or even things that you value more than what you valued in your twenties. So if you took like athletic performance, just me, I'm just taking an easy example and saying, well, when I was in my twenties, I wasn't married. I didn't have a family. Like I, I prioritize it over everything comparing that to where you're at now, where maybe you have like a job and kids and, you know, so how, how do you compare to past versions of yourself, but be fair to yourself in that process? It's normal for change to happen at every stage of your life. So who you are now is a different version than who you might've even been in two years ago in some ways. So I would start off with what are those elements of yourself that are unchanging or that are non-negotiable? So for example, your values, which is a word thrown around a lot, but I would say your values from the time you're in your twenties to I'm in my forties, my main values haven't really changed. But if they did change, that's okay. So for example, I would say on a personal level, it would be family first. So I'm, uh, I'm married. My wife and I have been married for uh, 11 years. We have a son and a daughter who are nine and 10. So family is first. So how does that show up in, a, in my daily life? That other one I said, I'm always learning and growing. That would be a value too. I'm creating, another one might be, I'm creating experiences that really move and impact both my customers or clients, which would be as a professional speaker and facilitator. But I also want to create experiences for my family where it leaves a daily imprint on the importance of this unit to all of us. So my point is, first look at the values that you have that might not have changed over time. Those non-negotiable principles, that's like a GPS through life. But then give yourself a break on the others that might have changed, that probably changed, that every person I've ever met, met, if we interviewed them, they have changed from the time they're in their 20s to their 40s. So you can't look into the future 
and project and say, in my 40s, I'm going to value these things. But in my 20s, when you're in it, when you're in that moment, when you're focused on your, you know, whether it's a sport, whether it's your school, whether it's whatever that might be when you're in your 20s, your first big job, an important relationship. When you're in that moment, it's hard to see outside of that bubble. So to give yourself a break and to say, I'm going to change, change is normal and part of life. And what I did in my 20s, the mistakes that I made, the ways that I screwed up, everybody screwed up. I made mistakes in my 20s that now I look back and I might even cringe as to like, well, that's not who I am now. But to forgive myself for those little mistakes that I made along the way and to realize that all of those mistakes help me make the person I am now. So if you're in your 20s now and listening to this or even your early 30s, I say that every mistake that you make have made, those cumulatively are going to help you become that extraordinary person you are when you're a little bit older, because cumulatively, you're going to learn from those and wisdom only comes with experience. So all the mistakes that I've made have made me hopefully uh, a good, a decent, uh, good man, a good husband and a good father, and even a good speaker and a coach. Because when I'm, I don't coach one-on-one, I coach groups and I speak with CEOs and all kinds of different groups. I realize now that when they're seeking my help on having difficult conversations on problem solving, I can tap into all these different areas of my life without really even, uh, I don't usually have a script in front of me. And I'm even surprised with myself, not impressed, but surprised because I say, where did that come from? And I was like, oh, wait a second. I made a big mistake when I was 27 while I was working here and, and this, and I should have done this. And now I have that, that I can impart on another 27 year old and say, hey, I'm not gonna give you feedback, but this is what you might want to look out for. I messed up. This is from my experience. So every time you mess up, that helps change that future version of you into being someone who can serve others more effectively when you get to that point in your life. Yeah. So using curiosity to look back at past sidesteps or mistakes to see how you've gotten better and how that can inform the current version or even the future version of yourself. And then also being able to say, what are my values and am I living in alignment with these values? And you mentioned family is a primary value for you. And there's a lot of times where we'll say, well, these are my values, but then our actions speak differently than what those values are. And then we feel not so good whenever we're not living in alignment with what we said is important. Yeah. Emerson said, the writer said, your actions speak so loud. I can't hear what you're saying. (laughs) Your actions speak so loud. I can't hear what you're saying. So what I remind myself is your values. And and when I work with teams, I do a workshop just on values and we work through a seven-step process to find out what their values are, reinforce those. And there might be different ones than they came in with or they might articulate it in a different way. Because we think about our values, we don't usually clarify them on paper. I think some people do, but some people just take for granted, oh yeah, I know what my values. But when you write it mm-hmm. down and you slow down, it's a form of mindfulness to say, what do I really feel and think right now? Because your values are not the future. Your values are what you're doing in your life now. And so to your question is, I really think with values to make them real, they need to, it needs to be a phrase that's active. So when I say family first, that to me is active. I know what that looks like. I know what it means to make a decision because values help you make decisions on a daily basis. 
So I know what it means to say, I'm always thinking it, learning and growing. I, I understand what that means now. It's like you said, it's about process over results. It's about focusing on what's in my power in this moment, what's in my control to take one step forward toward my goal, whether you're an athlete, whether you're in a relationship, whether you're in a new job, what is in my control? There's always something in our control, even if it's our attitude to reframe a, a negative into a constructive next step. So the value needs to be a phrase, I think. You know, this is my, my research. It needs to be something that you're excited about, that's meaningful to you, not because I asked you to do it, but that you're thrilled and you're like, yes, family first. I'm always learning and growing. I get that. I have goosebumps running down my neck when I think of that. It's something you don't have to overthink. It's just, it's so ingrained in who you are that even if you step off that path for a moment, you know, there's sometimes when I, I was last week in three different Canadian cities in three days, I didn't exactly feel like it was family first. I was exhausted on the road, Winnipeg and Calgary and here. And mm -hmm. I came back and I said to my wife, Karen, I said, you know what? I'm happy that I was working. I'm grateful for the opportunities that, I, that I've been given, but that did not feel exactly aligned with my values. So I'm not going to necessarily say no to other speaking opportunities in the future, but let me see if even though balance might be impossible to have full balance, let me have a little more balance because the value didn't feel like it was prioritized, even though when you're working, you're working. So in any given moment, you can measure it and say, am I living up to my highest values? Yeah. And I think it can be really challenging for people who are very driven. And I'm sure lots of people that you work with are lots of people listening to this podcast are where they get a lot of joy and fulfillment from the work that they're doing or their training or whatever the thing is. And it's easy to let that overtake everything else. So like for me personally, family is also a value, especially I have like a, a newborn and a two-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's a, you know, intense times, but also great times and yeah. thinking in terms of, you know, going back to talking about goals and outcomes of I'm trying to achieve something, or I'm trying to even just be growing in my career, but what is that coming at the expense of? And it doesn't mean that you should quit your job and, or get, oh, go get a job where, you know, you can always just be with your family, but it's just the awareness around what am I trading in this moment? What am I prioritizing in this moment? And just, I think the awareness around that helps you live more in alignment with that value and that personal philosophy. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I think that keyword that I got from what you just said was the awareness of it. So it's not also, just like I said earlier to you listening, I also didn't want to, you know, beat myself up or be too hard on myself. It was just being aware of what opportunities am I accepting based on the values that I have. So it's not to say I'm no longer going to be doing a living, not even a career, a living that I love being a speaker and facilitator. This is uh, what I should be doing. This is, uh, you know, my highest way that I impact others outside of my inner sphere. It's just a matter of looking at it and saying, hmm, this was really pushing myself to the limit and I am really driven to a fault sometimes. Is this the right balance between being driven and ambitious and focused and wanting to make the most of myself? Is, is, can you overextend or overuse a trait like, like driven? So I'm a leadership coach with this company organization called the Leadership Circle. So they measure what makes leaders great. 
They looked at about 200 leaders around the world. It's data informed. And they found that drive can be both a strength or what they call a creative competency of the highest leaders, but also, Sonia, it can become a liability. It, it's not negative. It helped people get to where they are. Elon Musk is highly driven. Steve Jobs was highly driven, right? Some of the most successful people are extremely driven where they're working 100 hours weeks. But you look at the other areas of their life and they're way out of whack, even by their own measure, not me judging them. So if you're driven, and I'm imagining if you're listening to this podcast from the research I've done on you, Sonia, and your success, you are probably driven because people who are driven tend to see other people who are driven, admire that and say, hmm, what can I learn from people who have this level of expectation on themselves to achieve those things? It's just to be aware of any success trait, if it's overextended, if it becomes too much of an obsession, a little bit of obsession is okay because the most successful people are so driven, single-minded focus to get to where they want, especially when you're in your 20s. That's like, you know, your energy is sublimated into this goal. You just want to be aware, like you said, is this overextended or overused because it can flip and have a negative effect on your life <laughs> before you know it. Yeah. I call that burning in the fire of your own passion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So you have been a teacher. Like I want to continue exploring your career because I think it's really interesting. So you moved on from SNL. What made you decide to do that? That was one of those moments that change was in the air. I lost, well, I didn't lose, but 9-11 happened in New York, September 11th. And my visa expired around that time. And I could not get it technically renewed. And the reason that I was told at the time was it's much harder in this moment to get visas renewed from other countries. I had an H1 visa, not that that matters. And so I looked at my life and I said, okay, I could stay here illegally and try to eke out a way to work at a bar because I was friends. I wasn't friends with nightclub owners. I could do that, I guess. I don't really know if I want to do that after working at, you know, for Lorne Michaels for a few years, or I could go home and literally start from scratch, but at least it would be on my terms. So it was a very difficult decision. I okay. came back to Toronto after living on my own for many years. And university, I lived on my own. It was out of town. And then Saturday Night Live, I lived out of town. And now all of a sudden, I'm living at my parents in their basement. you know. And it was quite humbling <laughs> to go from there. But I started my own company. And I did that for a few years. And I realized that it wasn't fulfilling enough. I didn't feel working as a freelancer media producer at that time was really filling my soul or really bringing me or sparking joy in my life. So I went to teacher's college and I said, well, I can continue to do those projects, but I just felt this calling at that time to be a teacher. So I went to teacher's college. I ended up becoming a teacher for 12 years. And on the side, I was starting to be asked to give speeches. So toward the middle of my teaching career, I gave a talk. I was asked to give a TEDx talk in Luxembourg, which was a dream. I wanted to give a TEDx talk. I didn't know how to do it. And I gave this talk and it was viewed quite uh, around the world. I started getting messages and I started getting asked to give more speeches. So that was... I think, a sign of what I'm doing today. So this, the teaching career, just like SNL, 
this was the largest private school in Canada of its kind. And it just went poof. I got a message one day with 30% of the teachers and said, uh, we're merging these two campuses and everybody who hasn't worked X amount of time loses their job in two weeks. Now, here's how I reframe that. There was people, teachers crying in the school. People were angry, up in arms. How could they do this to us? I had the you know, highest level of, like I was supposed to have a job for life, you know, tenure in this world. Uh, I jumped through all the hoops and all of a sudden I lost my job, but I didn't feel bad at all, Sonia. I noticed that the friends outside of teaching who I'd made during my Saturday Night Live days who were really fascinating people from all over the world, when they heard their first reaction was, that's awesome. <gasps> really? You lost your job, the teaching job? Fantastic. Even my wife said, I think this is a blessing because I had wanting to go part-time and pursue other things. I, would, I wrote a book and it became a bestseller and, I, and I, I won these awards and all these other things that were kind of showing me not to brag, but just to say like, there was these other signs that I should be teaching, but maybe in a different level than 25 students at a time or running the school's activities, which was noble, but like, could I still teach, but maybe for thousands of people or more. So I took the leap and I was offered other teaching jobs, even a vice principal job. And I said, no, thank you. And I had a few friends around me, some of those people outside of my teaching friends, and they started making introductions. Not everybody, but mm -hmm. a few friends, those angel type friends that when you're going through a transition, those are the friends you should be, in my, my, my view, loyal and you know, remember and be grateful for, for life. I just spoke with one the other day. I'm going to name him Jim Norgate. He's a former police officer and a professor now at Niagara College in Ontario. So Jim reached out to me and he said, hey, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, you know, I'd love to be a speaker. And he didn't say, what does that mean? What well, speaker? Well, define that. He just said, oh, I think you'd be great. He said, I have two contacts. I can't promise anything, but I'm going to introduce them to you if you want. And I think they might be coming through Toronto. And I went, yeah, sure. People say that all the time. Your actions speak so loud. It doesn't matter what you're saying. <laughs> so he made calls. One was to the biggest financial firm in Canada. And the other one was to his dean at Niagara College. And they both accepted interviews with me, of which he sat in on. And they both hired me. And those sprung on other things. And then I got a big speaking agency and now I have seven speaking agencies and I now I'm working two or three days a week globally, 21 different countries I've spoken to this year alone. And it started when I got, however you want to say it, let go. What are the nice words to say out of my control from teaching? And now I just, I'm building curriculum. I'm speaking to people all day. I love it. And it's part of my greater purpose. So when the, the biggest changes in my life happened, Saturday Night Live, if I didn't lose that job, even though, again, I was out of my control, a visa issue, I don't meet my wife. I don't, I, maybe I don't come back to Toronto. I'm in New York producing Scooby-Doo 3. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but my wife and my children like this house, like this, all this blessing is because of falling forward. If I don't lose my teaching job after 12 years of doing all the right things I was supposed to do as a teacher and liking my job, my stable job, if I don't lose that job at that moment, I'm not doing, we're probably not having this conversation. I am not doing what I've been doing the last five years, four and a half, five years, which is life, life altering for me in terms of reaching more people in a way that 
was hard to envision fully until I was literally out of the boat and I had to find a way to swim and tread water. Yeah. It sounds like you've really found your calling and that going back to what you said earlier, surrounding yourself with the right people is really important. And that friend that you mentioned, Jim Norgate, was that his name? Yeah. That he was a hugely impactful person. And even as you were telling that story, I felt expansive feelings in my body when you're like, oh, wow. And you know, it's important to have those people around you instead of people that make you feel constricted, like you can't do something. And I'm also hearing that you're super optimistic about life. Like these things happen to you and you could focus on all the things that could go wrong or all the reasons why this bad thing happened. Or you could say, wow, this is such a great opportunity for me to continue inventing or growing or stepping into this role that I am going to create for myself. And optimism is one of my values and something that I I think is really important and is something that can be trainable. You have a a practical optimist course, and I'm really curious to hear about this course. Yeah. Well, my interest in this particular topic is it was really during COVID where I was asked to come up with a, a short course for CEOs on optimism. So I asked myself what that really means. And during COVID, which was really, it affected everyone globally. What does it really mean to be an optimist in today's world or in a post-COVID world? So practical optimism, I was inspired by um, a book called The Stockdale Paradox, amongst other works, and also Man's Search for Meaning. And what those two books, uh, stories were, those true stories were, practical optimism in the case of the Stockdale paradox was James Stockdale was the highest ranking US military official who was imprisoned in Vietnam. And he said, and he wrote this in, in this book, that what got him through was confronting the brutal facts, the facts as they are before anything. What is happening here? Not my opinion, not my emotional perspective, what's actually happening and being very clear on that. And once he was clear on what the facts are, even if he didn't like the facts, even if they were hard to swallow, he then said, I had an unwavering faith that I would ultimately be free. But I didn't put a time on it. I didn't say by Christmas, I'll be free because he said the optimists were the ones who didn't really accept fully the situation they were in. They tried to sugarcoat it, even though that was their way of coping and say, I'm going to make a date that by Easter, I'm free. And then by Easter, they weren't free and they got emotionally down or depressed. And then Christmas came, I'm going to be free now. And then eventually they lost hope. So the practical optimist looks at the problem and looks at it as a, as a challenge, maybe not a problem and says, I need to address this as it is. I need to meet the problem or the challenge on its own terms. But ultimately I have this unwavering faith or hope that I have it within my power to do what's in my control to make the most of this situation with my attitude. And ultimately, I'm going to overcome this, even though I don't have control when I'm going to be let out. And so that was a foundation, a point of the practical optimist. And the course addresses this with with specific ways that you can do it on a daily basis to actually help other people when they're dealing with challenges, which is one of the ways a practical optimist can thrive, even in difficult times is... How, Sonia, how can I help you deal with what you're dealing with without giving advice, but like, what can I do to show you gratitude? What can I do to raise your spirits? There's Harvard Business Review did a study recently, 
And I'm happy there's empirical data to back this up. And for the athletes, I think this is valuable if you're on a team of any kind, um, is they called it positive relational energy, positive relational energy. And the researchers found that when you're speaking to someone, when you're on a team, when you're in an organization, even with your family, the best thing that you can do for them is not be charismatic. There's nothing wrong with being charisma as a form of warmth. And I teach charisma, but charisma can come across a bit fake and inauthentic. It's not about how you dress. It's not about how you look. It's not even about your body language. It's about something called positive relational energy. And this is in a practical optimist, what you have control of. And here's what they found. Are you the type of person who uplifts people, who renews people, who enthuses people using enthusiasm as a verb? Enthusiasm is that emotional energy that starts with warm and becomes contagious, an emotional contagious energy that makes other people feel that they can conquer their goals. So do you uplift people? Do you renew people? Do you bring enthusiasm to them to help them feel like they can conquer their goals? And I see the practical optimist is once you deal with the facts, the difficulties, in my case, my practical issue was, well, I lost my job. I lost my job twice, once in my 20s and once when I was about 40-ish. <gasps> they both felt traumatic. Now what? Okay, let's deal with the facts. I lost my job. I lost my visa. My identity is connected to working in New York. When my friends from Toronto would say, hey, I'm going to be in town. I was the cool guy. Well, I didn't see myself. Mm-hmm. I was the guy who could get you tickets, Sonia. You call me up. Yeah, no problem. That felt good. It felt good to be around people like Lorne Michaels and all these celebrities every week. I felt important, shattered in my mid-20s. What do I do now? But that was the reality. And once I got over that, and trust me, I felt bad. I felt sorry for myself for weeks. I did nothing. I was like down in the dumps. And it's okay to feel the way you feel. But eventually, you got to pull yourself up and not be a victim to circumstance and say, okay, I feel bad. I'm, it's, I'm allowed to feel bad. Practically speaking, what am I going to do? What's the next step I can take that's in my control? My parents would has a saying growing up, it was in our house, which is the practical optimist. And I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, but this is the actual quote, take it for what you want. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. God grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So you got to know what you want to change, what you can change, what is not in your power to change, and what the difference between the two are. And the practical optimist constantly evaluates that in their life and always has this unwavering hope that you can and will succeed and conquer whatever you set out to. Yeah, I think that you kind of alluded to the fact that sometimes optimism or positivity can be not productive, where you're ignoring the things that are challenging, ignoring your feelings. So being able to accept and feel the things that you're feeling and not just pretending they're not there is really important. I also heard that doing that non-judgmentally is important. Like I lost my job, not I lost my job and then attaching a meaning to it. And then knowing that Hey, like I need to sit here in this hole for a little while, but the optimist knows, but, or, and I will be able to crawl out. Yeah, exactly. And what you said at the end there, the practical optimist is the yes. And improviser 
what we learned while I was around comedians and improvisers. The yes and is yes, this happened. And what can we build? What can we collaborate? What positive outcome can come? And sometimes when I'm speaking in groups and I bring up what yes and can mean for them, sometimes some a hand goes up and says, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying yes to something bad happening be, or if someone says something that I don't agree with because I feel like I'm agreeing with them. And I say, yes, I hear what you're saying, but I say, it's not saying that something that happened to you is a positive thing if you're acknowledging the facts. You're just saying, yes, I acknowledge that this happened. And like you said, I'm not going to judge myself. I'm not going, even if I made a mistake, I'm not going to judge myself. I'm going to acknowledge, yeah, I made a mistake. It happens. I'm going to learn from that. And what can I do moving forward? And what can I build on this? And who can I connect with? It's a major difference in your life if you start using yes and, as opposed to, I joke with Canadians, we tend to say um, yes, but, which is a, a polite way of disagreeing with people, uh, a diplomatic way, but it's, it's kind of passive aggressive. You want to say yes and to your life in every capacity. Yes, I got rejected by this path. Yes, this person ghosted me and there's something even better waiting for me. So this was, this was a sign that this person is not accepting me for whatever reason, which probably has nothing to do with me. And what can I do moving forward to grow even more than I have previously? I love that. The, the yes and thinking is something I've been working on and something I recently wrote an article about. It first came to my attention because I was reading about parenting. And whenever you're talking to a toddler, whenever you use the word, but you're negating that first thing that you said by saying, but, and then I started paying attention to my regular life and how I might be using the word, but, and then started using and instead and, and it's been really helpful. (laughs) And it's great to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of an offshoot of what we've been talking about, but you do handwriting analysis. So can you talk, can you talk about that? Cause I had never even heard of that before. Yeah. So I help people discover their strengths through their handwriting in under 10 seconds. Now I learned about this when I was 13 years old, because my mother, one day I came home and I was really upset and she said, what happened, honey? That's how she talks. And I said, I was on stage in front of my other students in drama class. And I froze because at that time in my life, I stuttered. I couldn't get the words out. And the kids laughed at me, not with me, but at me. And she said, let me see your handwriting. So I took out my journal or my notes from that day at school. And I wrote a few sentences on top of what I already had. And she said, you have traits in your handwriting that show that one day you're going to be a speaker. You're going to write, you're going to express yourself in words. And I was totally skeptical. I said, mom, are you telling me you can analyze my personality based on a few strokes on the page? That's crazy. Well, I didn't say that. I was thinking it though because my mother has always been a role model for me. But what it did is it planted a seed in my brain at that time that I could change. We talked about growth mindset earlier. This was planting that I could grow and I could change this thing based on what my mother saw in me that was beneath the surface. Even though I didn't really believe in it, I didn't understand how you could possibly look at someone's handwriting and tell them things about yourself. So I went on this mission of learning more about myself and handwriting became one of the means for me to learn about it. So 
the way it works is this, the act of writing starts in your brain, it sends a signal down your nervous system to your hand and your fingers carry out the directive of your brain. So your writing paints a picture of what you think. And each stroke you make on the page is directly correlated to a particular personality trait. And I can see about a hundred personality traits in a matter of seconds. It sounds very unusual, but what happens is it's like your personality on paper. It's like frozen body language. So your signature is what you want the world to see. Your writing is who you truly are. And your handwriting doesn't lie. And it's highly accurate. It's the most fun and effective for me, even though I have data-driven certifications in leadership, this is something that I've done with CEOs, I've done with celebrities, I've done on CNN comparing uh, Donald Trump's handwriting to Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. I've looked at Tom Brady and Beyonce and Oprah, and you might say, yeah, but everybody can Google those people. But I've done it with most of the time, 90% of the time with strangers who I just meet, and I tell them their strengths or their gifts. And I also can tell them if they want, and a lot of people want to hear this too, I will tell them areas that they might want to look at to improve upon. I can tell about their parents and the influence of a mother or a father, or even if other people in their lives had influence. And it's not mind reading. It's simply looking at those strokes and figuring out how the combination of those strokes makes you the unique person who you are. And it was just a hobby. But here's another takeaway. If you're in your 20s and you have a hobby, it, I don't know what your hobbies are. Let's say it's yoga. Let's say you have, uh, you sew. I don't know what your hobby is. You never know how a hobby can actually help and serve other people or be a connector to where you are now and where you want to be. And sometimes I think it can be dangerous, not physically dangerous, but to make a hobby into part of your career, because what you love about the hobby is it doesn't have any pressure of an outcome. But what I found was that I had this talent that I developed probably 10,000 hours plus, And I had no idea that decades later, I would not only be analyzing people's handwriting at Saturday Night Live, because when I worked at Saturday Night Live, I was a little shy. I would say I'm an ambivert, a little bit extrovert, a little bit introverted. I'd be a, called a situational extrovert where I can put on a big, my, my charis, more charismatic self, but I'm a little quieter when I'm not in front of people talking. And I ended up analyzing people's handwriting behind the scenes at Saturday Night Live and the company Lauren Michaels uh, founded. And that was my way to, everybody wanted to learn about themselves, even these well-known people. So if you have a hobby, don't neglect it because you're working too hard, because life gets in the way. Those hobbies become saviors. Those hobbies become key components of who you are as you grow older and you never know, like in my case, now what I do is when I give these three or four hour workshops, I get recommendations. Even if I'm giving a very serious talk on leadership or communication, can you do the handwriting thing? Because this CEO group saw it or this association saw it and they, they were, their minds were blown. Can you do it with our group? So now I have it at the end of most of my sessions where people hold up their handwriting, two sentences in a signature, and I tell them things about themselves in front of the group so they get to learn about each other. You know, I've done this with athletes too. I have a few friends who are professional athletes. One is uh, 
now he's an assistant coach with the Montreal Canadiens, but Luke Richardson used to play in the Toronto Maple Leafs and he billeted in our basement when he was an 18 year old rookie with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we stayed in touch since. And I've looked at his handwriting in front of groups of people. I've asked him to participate even in that too with other athletes because athletes really, you can see so many extraordinary traits like we've been talking about. Terry Fox, the legendary runner, he shows extraordinary resilience in the way his lower writing, his Y's and his J's are. There's certain points and pressure that show resilience. My friend Luke Richardson has overcome the worst possible circumstances with him and his wife. They lost a daughter. And Luke shows extraordinarily practical optimism in spite of what happened in his life and his wife's life and their other daughter's life. And so it's very moving when you look at someone objectively through this lens in a way that nobody has ever seen before. And you tell them things that are right there that they might've taken for granted. And it reminds them of their uniqueness. I think it's really, really interesting. And I'm excited to continue learning more about it. I have two questions about the handwriting analysis. Um, Number one, we don't handwrite like we used to. (laughs) Our hand, like my handwriting now is a lot messier than it used to be whenever I was writing a lot when I was like in high school. So number one, the first question, and I'll just give you both questions and you can take them and roll with them. The first question is, you know, when we don't write as much, how is that impacting all of these things that you're just talking about? And the second thing is if we start changing the way that we write to mimic a certain trait that we want to do, does that work? Yeah. So I'm happy you asked those questions. The first question, if you're an athlete, one thing that you can do that's very simple to be sharp when you're not doing athletics, but that can impact your athletic, your mind-body connection is writing, writing in a journal, writing down your goals. There's research that shows that it has a tangible effect on hand-eye coordination as you get older. And taking the time to actually write has a positive connection between how fast your mind and your body respond to each other. Several athletes, for example, I'm just throwing out that I hit Steve Nash, the late, uh, the MVP, Canadian MVP player, he's got all these figure eights. So you think of the, the letter, the number eight, all throughout his writing. DeMar DeRozan, the former Raptor, figure eights. There's not an accident that these athletes have very fluent strokes in the writing. Their mind and their body are so in sync. So the first thing is, even if you don't write much, which I would say, if you're listening to this at any age, especially in your 20s or 30s, you might say, you know what, this part of the conversation is not as relevant for me because I just don't see a reason to write anymore. I, I don't write that much or very rarely. My suggestion is you might want to consider going to a bookstore or and getting a journal and start writing down those thoughts because it's going to help you emotionally. It's, going to, it's a form of mindfulness to slow down, to get off of social media for a few minutes. You could do morning pages. So Julia Cameron wrote a book called The Artist's Way, which is one of the best books on creativity I've ever read. I still have it over here on my bookshelf. And what that shows was some of the most successful people in the arts, they write down their thoughts unfiltered every morning, maybe not every morning, 
for 45 minutes or three pages. That seemed to be the magic combination. So when you do that, it's a form of self-therapy. Abraham Lincoln used to do that. He used to call it a hot letter. When he was angry with a general, like General Meade during the Civil War, he was furious that Meade let the Southern troops off the hook. He wrote a vicious letter and it was never sent. It was said, never sent, never signed. And when he passed away, they, when he was killed, they found in, in the Oval Office a stack of letters that said, never sent, never signed. So as an athlete, it helps you deal with your emotions. It also helps your, your hand-eye coordination and keep it sharp in the moments you're not as an athlete. To your second question, it's called graphotherapy. So graphotherapy is a positive transformation tool in which by changing the strokes in certain letters, you can have an impact on those particular traits. It might sound hard to believe, but I've helped people do this. There was an audible narrator. So, you know, books on, you listen to books on Amazon and other, and, and, and other capacities. He got into an accident, this gentleman, he couldn't speak at the same level of eloquence and fluency that he did before the accident. And he did traditional means like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, these different things. He heard about graphotherapy. He reached out and I gave him one activity that he could do. And I said, if you do this for 10 minutes a morning, while you're brush not brushing your teeth, while you're watching TV, while you're you know, listening to music, which is a great combination, it's going to help build those neural pathways in your brain. So he did. He said, I have nothing to lose. So what the stroke is, and I can explain it to you, Sonia, even though we're on a podcast, is writing the letters E-L-Y. So E-L-Y, small e, small l, and small y. And what I'm doing with my fingers right now is if I have a pen, is I'm connecting the letters. So you're going to do what you're not going to print it. You're going to write E-L-Y, and you're going to move your body because... In France, they would teach handwriting at the same time as they would teach dance because that mind-body connection, E-L-Y, 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 and you're going to do that for a few minutes a day. And he found that after doing that for 30 days, that simple exercise, he got his level of fluency and eloquence almost to 90% of what it was before the accident where he couldn't speak in the same way. So graphotherapy has that tool. A few other graphotherapy tools you can use are if you're feeling really timid and which is normal sometimes, as you hear with my voice, I'm trying to act this out. If you're feeling a little bit lacking of confidence before, for example, you have a big athletic competition coming up and you've prepared, you've trained, you've done all the work, but you feel nervous. Look, the top performers in the world feel nervous before presentations of any kind. Johnny Carson used to throw up before every time he gave a Tonight Show. Bill Russell used to throw up before he led the, the Celtics to several championships. This is normal to feel uncomfortable. I feel nervous before I give presentations, even though I do this all the time. Even during our podcast at the beginning, I'm like, I feel a little nervous. Is that okay? Yes, I'm excited. And I care. That's why I feel nervous. I care. If I didn't care, I'd be indifferent. Like, I don't care. No, I want to do a good job. So do you. So if you feel timid and your writing is really small, write bigger. Chris Farley's handwriting is massive. So you want to actually expand your ego because when you write bigger, like you'll see a lot of celebrities handwritings like Oprah and Richard Branson and Obama, they have really large first letters in their first name. And what that is, that reminds your brain to say, I want to be seen. 
I want to be heard. I don't want to feel invisible. I don't want to feel small. I want to show up big. This is the time to bring that confidence, command respect in social situations, really own my own presence. And so that's also, if you're writing small, before you have a big event, write bigger. And again, suspend your disbelief by saying, I can't believe this guy is saying, if I have an event coming up, if I write bigger, it's going to make me feel more confident. I'm saying, yes, it's going to send a signal to your brain that you're going to show up in a much bigger level. And even if it's the, even if you think that this is not necessarily right for you, meaning, are you saying that if I do this, I'll believe it? I'm saying that there's proof that shows with any type of psychology, if you believe it, there's a better chance that it's going to happen. So I found this to be true. You could try the same is write bigger and you'll show up a little bit bigger. Well, thanks. There's so many practical tools and even just um, little sparks to get people's curiosity moving with all of this conversation that we've had. Where can people find you so they can find all of this? Like if they want to go deeper into anything that you've talked about. They can Google me or just go to my website, which is Jamie masoncohen.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing your energy and the beautiful way that you speak and tell stories and the amount of clarity that you speak with. I really enjoyed getting to chat with you. I feel inspired after our conversation and I feel that that practical optimism and that enthusiasm is a verb that you were talking about. I feel that when talking to you. Well, thanks, Sonia. It was really inspiring and a real pleasure to speak with you today too. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure to share it with your friends if you found it valuable or you think that they would too. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We've had lots of new listeners that have come along in the show and really appreciate you guys. So you don't want to miss out on future guests. I also really appreciate those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon and PayPal. You can do that at patreon.com slash the show. That's it for today. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you right back here next week.